Hi, I'm Joan London. If you're looking for senior care for your mom or dad like I was, call A Place for Mom, the nation's largest senior living referral service. Their local advisors will explain your options and help you select senior living communities at no cost to you. To speak with a local senior living advisory, call A Place for Mom at 800-211-4992. That's 800-211-4992. There's a place for answers, a place for mom. I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to a special episode of Just the Right Book. We are a podcast for enthusiastic and curious readers. We'll help you discover new books in all genres. We'll give you unique insights into your favorite authors. And we'll keep you up to date about what's going on in the literary world. We're taking a little break and getting some new episodes of Just the Right Book ready for Season 2. In the meantime, we thought it would be great fun to celebrate the paperback releases of some of our favorite guests from Season 1 by revisiting some of those conversations. Last winter, I had the pleasure of speaking with the best-selling author Amy Dickinson, who you probably know from her nationally syndicated advice column called Ask Amy, carried in over 150 newspapers and read by a stunning 22 million readers daily. Amy's book, Strangers Tend to Tell Me Things, a memoir of love, loss, and coming home, is now out in paperback. And we just had a great conversation talking about finding love at middle age, the pain and heartbreak of caring for an ailing parent at the end of their life, and, of course, her moving back to her little town of Freeville, New York. So let's take a look back at uh, the conversation Amy and I had. I don't know if many of my friends are as witty and wry as you are, but I mean, it, it was, I was just happy reading the entire uh, book. So congratulations. All the reviews have uh, given it the kinds of uh, attention and accolades that I think it really deserves. Oh, thank you very, very much. And, and I'm sitting here in little Freeville, New York, um, <laughs> because this book covers basically the last 10 years of my life, the Mm. most recent 10 years of my life. And spoiler alert, I survived. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You're there. (laughs) Yeah, I'm still here. But like a lot of people in my sort of cohort, late middle age, I moved back home to help take care of my mother. And something like one in 10 Americans are providing care now for ill family members. And um, in our case, as in many cases, it is truly a family affair. And my sisters and I did our best. You know, we pulled together. I came back home. um, And it really started this um, very, very, very significant period of my life. And Amy, here's the question I had as I uh, read it. And I was very touched by the way in which you talked about the grief after your mom died. My my dad died about 11 years ago, and I, I, I spoke to him probably every single day um, in my, you know, even after I was long gone from the house. And the, the inability to move past the grief or put it in its place 
talk to us a little bit about how you dealt with sort of dragging it around. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and how you came, how you came to um, grips with it without losing the memory of your mom. Well, one thing I encountered was, you know, I'm a professional advice giver, and I I think anybody who does what I do for a living, you hubris, you know, sits on your shoulder because, mm-hmm. um, of course, I think I have the answers, and if I don't have the answers, I know how to get them. In the years of being with my mother before her death, she was very ill, very frail. I, in my, in my arrogance, I thought that I had pre-grieved her passing mm. because the caretaking was so hard and so emotional and so challenging for all of us. I thought, well, this is the worst part, you know, and you don't want to see someone suffer. And my mother had a really wonderful death, you know, so to speak. It was very gentle. I was there. All of you were there. I was there, you know, and I, so I wasn't prepared for the loss because I was anticipating the loss for five years. Right. And, and yet it hit me really, really hard. And um, I do describe in the book this feeling of right after her death, this feeling of almost euphoria because I felt like uh, my sisters and I had done what we were supposed to do, and we we did our best, you know, and it worked out. It worked out. But like many people, I think like maybe you and your dad, my husband and his father, I would describe my mother as my best friend. Mm. <laughs> so in addition to losing, you know, this, this DNA strand, um, I lost, you know, my best pal. Who would I turn to to help with this grief other than my mother, mm-hmm. you know, and and she wasn't there. And for me, I, I tried everything in my toolkit. You know, I, I see a therapist. I wrote about it. I, I tried meditation. Um, but mainly for me, and I think all of the, those things have helped a lot, but but for me, I just needed to be very gentle with myself. I had become very kind of brittle and angry, and um, I I was just very – I was surprised that I was so angry. Like, I would fly off the handle, which is mm-hmm. really not like me. And now, of course, looking back, I realize I was just so stressed and so sad. And, you know, <laughs> time, yeah. time, time does it. And what time – has done for me it's it's enabled me to um i think a lot of us who go through the death process with a loved one you can get stuck in that those last months mm. i remember asking a friend of mine from high school her father oh i loved him he was this wonderful man he died both of her parents were wonderful and i'd known them my whole life and they died and i remember asking her do you ever remember them as they were when they were young? Like, does that happen? She said, yes, it does. You know, you have to move. It's almost like you're moving backward backwards in time. And so one of the things I, I made sure to do, for instance, when I eulogized my mother, was I, I remembered her publicly as she was as a young woman. Right. And I was so glad I had done that because I wanted to restore that. That version of her. Yeah. Yep. And 
you and your mom, you, your mom uh, and your dad, although I love the way you call your mom Jane. Yes. Well, yes. <laughs> Jane. God love her. Um, you know what? It, it was challenging um, to decide how to refer to my mother. Um, and I was very influenced by George Hodgman's book, Bettyville. Um, which I love. I don't know that book. Oh, my gosh. Oh, it's All so right, wonderful. I'm writing it down. George Hodgman, he was this, like, New York sort of literary, you know, agent darling, and he moved back to his hometown in Missouri, and he took care of his mother in her very advanced old age. His book is called Bettyville. It's absolutely wonderful, and he calls her Betty throughout. And there's something about referring, for me, Referring to her mother by her my mother by her first name, really for me, I wanted for readers to see her as a, a fully realized person, not just my mother. Well, that's interesting that you say that because I, I thought about it as a uh, device, and and what I did find it accomplished is exactly what you said. I thought of her not merely as relative to you. But it made me think about her as an independent person. I mean, I think the way you – I think we're kind of going back and forth, but let me back up a second. So your mom uh, and your dad had a – at a relationship that ended early, your dad was not what what one might um, refer to as a reliable um, (laughs) – I'll is say. that fair? Is that okay well, to I say? Re- I refer to my father as a world-class abandoner. Yeah. And actually... Um, and he went on to abandon a lot of people, yeah, not just yeah, all no. of you. He left a... a there are just a, you know, like women in his wake. Oh, God bless him. Um but my parents actually were married for almost 25 years. I know. Yeah. It, it surprised me when yeah. I thought about how he moved her around, how he had one business after another, one job, not really. And so I was sort of in love with your mother before I fell in love with you as I was uh-huh. reading yeah. the book because I thought, wow, this woman is just marching forward and obviously uh, protected and loved you in a way that made you independent, loving, and responsive to her. So it seems like she protected you from the damage that might have, that a dad like yours might have incurred. Right. I mean, our childhood was, by most measures, really unstable. And my mother, I think because she really loved being a mother, uh, she was a lot of fun. I mean, she never acted like there was anywhere else she'd rather be. Mm. She had tons of friends. You know, it was really a, great to be raised by somebody who was enjoying it, even though there was poverty, a lot of instability, moving around. Infidelity. Uh, yeah, right, and that. <laughs> and the fact is but my mother was very passive, I think, in her relationship with my father. And after he left... She blossomed. She was liberated. (laughs) She was totally liberated. She was very sad about his leaving. And then she got a job. She ended up going to college. And I got to see my mother blossom. Yeah. And what a joy. 
And that's the thing that was stunning to me when I think that she would, when I realized she was married that long, because a lot of times I think when you're in that kind of relationship for that long, the capacity to have the confidence or intrepidness to go on and do what she did is unusual. The fact is she was very beaten down, I think, by my father. Yeah. And and I will say this about my mother. She, too, came from an amazing family. And like me, my mother was blessed with wonderful sisters. And, I mean, it re- my story really is a story about women raising each mm. other up. It really yeah. is. And so once my father exited... My mother, for many, many, many years, really um, lived in a realm of women, and it was uh, fantastic. Amy, so you go back to this tiny town, right? 500-something. 520. 520. So (laughs) when I moved out of New York uh, and opened R.J. Julia's in in Madison, Connecticut, there were times where I said to myself, obviously, although now I'm saying it— on the air, I said to myself, you know, God made the city and the devil made the small town. Like, I like the cute little stuff. I love running into everybody. You know, we also live in a tiny little village in Maine. And it has its pluses and minuses. But as I read your book, you know, you have your family that's there. Your family had been in this town since the revolutionary uh, times. You Marry Bruno, who will come back to his story. He's one of 13 kids who are on this vast farm and all, all of those people. Is it, has it been as comforting and idyllic as it felt in reading the book? Um, you know, I think I came back at the right time yeah. in my own life. That's a big part of it. If you I, had stayed, it would have felt different. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Also, I travel. I mean, I get out and about, you know. So You get to that. Chicago. Yeah. But I'm at a point in my life where I'm really ready to, um, you know, give and receive attention, <laughs> honestly. Mm. And this is a small, rural, sort of down-on-its-heels place. And just the other day, I, I went, I was at church, and I came out of church, and I, well, actually in the middle of the service, uh, Someone sort of burst in, and he was a really marginal character. And everyone just made a place for him. And I thought about how in my urban life, I was pretty cocooned, Mm. you know? Yeah. And here, just going to the post office and just, I, I have a lot of access to people who we have a lot in common because we live here. But we're a very different um, sort of socioeconomic levels and whatever. And and there's because it's a small place, you are I I think very tolerant. Yeah, you know it, it, it's, it's like interesting, that. Amy. That's a very interesting way of thinking about it because you know increasingly we read about people living in silos, um, living in echo chambers, mm-hmm. and really thinking we understand what's going on in the world because we're surrounded by people who all look sound and live like we do. Right. And I do think what you lose is empathy. 
I yeah. think you lose the, you know, you developed the, Elizabeth Manning wrote a book years ago called Undercurrents. Uh, I'm not even sure if it's in print, but it was about her uh, in middle age having to get electric shock uh, treatments mm. to deal with her depression. But she had a line in that book, and this is decades after I read the book and met her. She had a line in her book that said, I had the arrogance of a white middle-aged woman who thought life was good because I made it that way and controlled it. Mm-hmm. And I think when you go back, when I think of the small town in in Maine, you understand how things go right and wrong for people. Some of it deserved to Absolutely. the bad and some of it not. Right. And, and, and any of us in a rural area like this where a lot of people still farm, you know, you are one farm accident away from uh, catastrophe. Yeah, or weather. Weather, absolutely, absolutely. And so um, at this stage in my life, I just feel very open to that. And I think it's, I don't know, I think some people, as we age, we get tougher. Mm. And I seem to have become a little a little softer. I, and I, I, I needed to, I needed to to do that. And, you know, maybe softer is not the right word. One of the things that I think about, and I'm that much older uh, than you are, is I think that we have each individually had enough uh, successes and failures to have a broader understanding and more forgiveness for things in general, not you know, I'm married almost 50 years. There are days that I think, why did I marry this man? <laughs> uh, but yeah. really, most days I think, wow, we're one person. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't mean that there aren't things that he does. I, Of course, I don't do things that drive him crazy. No, he only does things no. that... So speaking of marriages and love, you had successfully, independently been a single mom to Emily for a very long time, all the way through getting her to college. Right, almost 20 years. Yeah. And not not really, as they say, looking for love. No. Right? You were sort of a happy, independent person. You moved back to Freeville. You've got your aunts. You've got your mom. And and I lived, I had a daughter, all of my sisters have daughters. You know, I, I continued to live in this, in this... Um, Female bubble. This, this women world, <laughs> and I, women, which I love. I like that better, women world. Women world, yeah. And then what happens, Amy? Well, God bless me, right? Um, of course, in a small town like this, having grown up here, everybody I encounter... Um, Either I went to high school with them, their parents, or my parents went to high school with their parents, and um, I was looking to renovate a little house and to honestly install some um, safety measures in my mother's old farmhouse. And everybody said, you should call Bruno. You should call Bruno. Um, Bruno was somebody I had not seen in decades. Um, He had become a very successful contractor. And builder, but I knew him from childhood. He, uh, his family farmed uh, nearby, and we had all gone to high school together. And so I called Bruno, and Bruno walked into my life in my book. <laughs> it really happened like this. He was like John Wayne, <laughs> darkening the doorway of Maureen O'Hara's little cottage. And he's a big boy. And he's a big guy. 
Yeah. And it was, uh, honestly, it was just an instant connection. Mm. Um, there's just no substitute for pheromones, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. And, and do you think someone you would have fallen so completely and utterly in love with earlier in your life? No, and actually we talk about that a lot. And Bruno says, you wouldn't have, you know, you wouldn't have given me two seconds in high school. Um, And no, it was just, it was like two people at the right place and the right time. And he had four daughters. Four. He has four daughters. Right. Single dad, four daughters. And you do a pretty good job of explaining how fiercely daughters protect their single dads. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was, um, again, in my in my arrogance, I thought, oh, I, I got this. Yeah, I got I, this. I'm actually very into um, kids, young people. You know, I, I just was very self-assured about my ability to win over these girls. And what do you know? <laughs> your trip to New York, your trip to New York, your first family trip with the girls yeah. is worth the price of admission <laughs> of your book alone. Right. And and what parent or step-parent hasn't had, you know, a series of experiences where you feel like you're trying so hard and failing so big, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. You did a great job of making it seem um, both inevitable and unlikely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amy, uh, on a slightly different topic, we share two annoyances um, that I read about in the book. One is, tell me how you feel about Maria Kondo, oh. uh, who is who is the very best-selling author of Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Share your thoughts with us. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's quite obvious that she has a, a serious disorder. And and as I describe in the book, it's like um, her OCD, you know, she's turned her OCD into this um, technique. And I, for one, I, w- I was so enraged. <laughs> yeah. Because like a lot of people my age, I inherited stuff. You know, I mean, stuff and stuff and stuff. I have more stuff. And um, her, Marie Kondo's ruthless technique, and actually, I love the idea of holding an object and saying, does it spark joy? Yeah, I do like that. I love that. That's the, that's the part of the book I loved. But in my world, there are many, many objects that are like, um, not sure, you know, <laughs> Maybe not now, but maybe next week. <laughs> right. And and so what I did, because the clearing of the stuff has been a huge aspect of the last, actually, several years of my life. Because you inherited your mom's house. I inherited my mother's house and barn full of wonderful, wonderful things. And many, many broken chairs and just stuff. And so what I ended up doing, here's, here's a technique anyone in the country can, can copy. I started burning things. Um, this is really a, a symbolic gesture that ended up being very, very helpful to me. I made a little bonfire because I was so, I was quite paralyzed by, by my possessions because my feelings, I mean, Marie Kondo is on to something. You know, your feelings get very wrapped up. And this idea of attachment, you know, I would rather be attached to people than to things. Um, but my mother was very attached to things, and she always said, my things never let me down. People, they do. 
but I went into the barn and I started pulling out broken furniture. And I thought, if I love it enough to have it repaired, I'll do it. But um, otherwise, and I'm not going to take it to the dump. And I decided to burn things. It sounds kind of bad, right? And and did that did the exercise of doing that have a subsidiary benefit? Oh, it was huge yeah. for me. Huge. I felt like I was doing uh, the right thing. And honestly, I, I it is largely symbolic, but it was also, I live in a, a place where you can set something by the side of the road and somebody will pick it up and take it. And, and that's great. And that is a wonderful way to sort of, you know, free cycle your furniture. But there was a whole category of things where I did not want to do that. I just wanted to end <laughs> end their existence in a way that I felt was a little more dignified than ending up at somebody's trailer, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And I have no regrets. That's um, great. I had a series and still do burn things that really cannot be repaired. And it's been, and then I took, I mean, this was purely symbolic, but I took the ashes and I spread them in the garden. Jeez. And so I just felt like these things that had been here for a couple hundred years... Remain there. They're still here, right. You know, it reminds me a little bit about that piece that you write about. I forget whether it was a therapist or a friend that spoke to you after your mom died that made you think of your mom as still part of the sky. She talked about matter. My aunt. Oh, it was your aunt. My Aunt Millie. Oh, my gosh. My Aunt Millie, God bless her, she's the philosopher in the family, and I I sought her out. She's in her 90s, and I just needed, I just needed to know, you know, what... What she, happens? What <laughs> happens? What happens? And my aunt said, you know, Amy, I look up, and of course, we live in an area um, that is all sky. I mean, it's so beautiful at night. It's what I call big sky. Big sky. And she said to me, and I was standing outside when I was talking to her, and she said, you know, when I look up at the night sky and I see the stars and I think that they are made of matter and we're made of matter, and I just think that we end up among them. Mm. And this isn't about heaven, you know? Yeah. It's really more about well, it's it, it is related to the ashes. You know? It's organic, though. Right. It's organic rather than right. uh, you know, sort of a new home with 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 other angels, angels in heaven. Wings and, <laughs> yeah, it's right. like we end up as part of the world. Yeah, I loved that. Well, I do think when I write to someone that I know well and one of their parents has passed, what I often say, and this is another way of thinking of matter, is that the legacy of a parent is the character of their children, mm, yeah. right? And right. it's another way of thinking about how matter remains matter. Mm-hmm. A part of you is Jane. Right. Part of how you function, a part of what you might say or how you might treat your kids is still Jane. So I think about matter in both the way that you so beautifully described in the book, but also in the way we all go on functioning and Emily will function. Right. Or Bruno's uh, girls will. All of our girls, yeah. uh, I, I, I love that idea of that thread 
that continues and, you know, sometimes not for the good, but often for the good. I remember at one point when my mother was very ill, she, she I was talking to her on the phone and she was nervous about about something. And I said to her, Mom, we've got this, you know. And she said, well, how do I know? And I mm. said, because you did a really good job. Right. I said, you did a really good job. And my sisters and I are together, okay? So we we got it. And I was really happy to be able to say that to her. Right, right. Because that's her legacy. Yes. Now, switching topics a little bit, the name of your book uh, is Strangers Tend to Tell Me Things. Right. Now, um, that can be a benefit or a an incredible burden. Right. <laughs> Which do you find it most of the time? Well, given that, uh, that refers to what I do for a living, which is I'm an advice columnist. So I receive, you know, letters containing stories and problems. And it also happens to me in my regular life. People tend to reveal to me. And I think, honestly, it's because I'm pretty much an open book. So, yeah, I have people who seek me out in the store, at a party. At the gas and, station. And actually, this it only was a burden, honestly, when I worked at the Chicago Tribune at the office because I was trapped in a confined space and my colleagues started Would reveal coming to things. Me. Yes. Yeah. They started coming to me and honestly I think the way I handled this um you know I I do think I did the right thing. I I realized quickly that this was not going to be good for our relationships, our collegial relationships. Like I, you know, not a good idea for me to know about your marriage um if we're not close, you know. Yeah. Because then I have to go to a meeting with you. So and you know all that. That really was a burden. And that is when I actually um, started seeing a therapist as a way to try to cope with that. And in the course of doing that, I got uh, a phone number for the, the consulting therapist at Northwestern Hospital. And I just started, I had two answers when people would come into my office and start to unburden. I would say, okay. This sounds like a really good question for my advice column. Why don't you write it up and send mm. it to me? So I'd say that. Or I would say, look, here's this phone number. You know, this might be a better, this, you know, this is, this is beyond my pay grade. Why don't you give a call? And, I, and that was, you know, that was a good way to sort of cope with it. So, Amy, you have 22 million people. Well, that's what they say. I mean, does that even sound possible? <laughs> Well, it does. Because, you know, I think about, I still subscribe to print newspapers. I love print newspapers. And um, I find myself still attracted to the few columns that still exist. But as I was reading about you, I thought, you know, sometimes when I get, I'm a person also pretty transparent. And as a result, people often uh, disclose things or ask advice in my little world. And I'm often nervous about, well, what if I gave them the wrong advice? What if I ought to be have said that? You know, should I circle back with them? Mm -hmm. And so how do you cope with the fact that you're giving advice that 20 something million people are reading? Do you you ever feel like, oh, I want to go back and talk about that some more? I want to change my answer? You know, there have been very, very, very few occasions where I've 
felt, in, in fact, one really stands out where I felt like I got something wrong. But the good thing about my column is that I can correct it right. because people respond to me and they'll say like, oh, boy, you blew that. So you can come back and, and, and talk say, about it. Oh, right? yeah. And I'll say like, you know what? You're right. Um, my favorite responses, honestly, are when people offer up their own techniques. Yeah. For instance, let's say it's a question about how to divide up um, an inheritance or possessions. When people write in and they'll say like, oh, in my family, we had a lottery or, you know, I don't know. I just people have very practical solutions for sort of practical that you can then share. Yeah, really love that. I love that. So, Amy, how about this? We we asked our listeners if they had questions. We got a ton of them, but I'll give you. okay. I'll give you one. Okay. um, because it sounds I'm betting uh, it's not that uncommon. Dear Amy, I've been divorced for about five years now. I'd really like to have as little contact with my in-laws as possible, just enough to maintain a relationship for my son. Unfortunately, my ex-mother-in-law gives me a lot of grief for not keeping in touch with her. She's always asking me to meet with her to have dinner or get together at her house. I'm happy to make plans with her so she can see her grandson, but I feel she's very manipulative and patronizing. She went from being a nice woman to manipulative and patronizing with me, and I don't see it as a healthy way for me to move on in my life. What can I do to make this work for my son but also myself, signed, help with my outlaw. Okay. So the, 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 un, you know, the detail that's missing in that letter, as so often is the case, is where is where, the ex? Yeah, where's the dad? <laughs> because it's his job um, to, I mean, this is a perfect role for him to assume would be to help his parents stay close to his son. I honestly, um, I understand that this is hard for her, but I give her a lot of credit for realizing that this is good for her child. Mm. Uh, My brother left his family when his children were young, and my former sister-in-law did such a good job of staying close with us. It was like she just... Um, I was, I don't know, I felt like, oh, she's going to be so mad at him. You know, why would she want to stay close with us? And she really did a great job. And I, I always think of that as sort of the model. It's very awkward for ex, you know, anything, ex-in-laws. And I, obviously, this grandmother wants to stay close. When the child is old enough, it's going to be fine because she right. can just have a relationship And until then, A, I would say that, you know, the father needs to pick up some of the slack here if if he's in the, if he lives in the area. But otherwise, you know, this is like most questions that come into me are about boundaries and it's about sort of maintaining really like healthy, strong boundaries. Yeah. Not something a lot of us are good at. Right. And I, I would also encourage, you know, this grandmother to say like, hey, you know, I don't, she doesn't say how old the child is, but um, do you want to be with him for a couple of hours? Well, I'll drop him off. I'll drop him off. Yeah. So. This is why 22 million people are reading you, Amy. (laughs) Such a simple, wise answer. Thank you. Uh, So here's my uh, last two questions that I love to ask authors. Uh, what's the book that changed your life? Oh, I love that. Oh. Because as a bookseller, of course, I believe yeah. books change lives. You know, I, I'm 
this is a little embarrassing, but it's very on brand. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead. Go with and say it. it. The road not taken. Oh, you know I love that too. I, I will tell you what I reread it recently, and honestly, I was like, huh, what was it about this that changed my life? But it was a a case of a book coming along at a time. Mm. My first husband had just left me very, very suddenly. Andy. Andy. And I was bereft. And I I picked up this book, and there was, in the first couple of pages, there's this wisdom that goes like this. Things happen. (laughs) You can't change the things that happen. You have to, like, life is about sort of accepting the things that happen and moving through the things that happen. That's how I remember that um, wisdom. And it really was, I can truly say that that book, which sold, you know, tens of millions of copies, I'm sure, was very important to me. I read a lot of self-help books. I mean, it's it's what I, I need to do that for my job. And I think there is definitely wisdom in some of these, in some of these books. As I was reading your book, the notion I was left with was things happen and the intersection of of loss and joy sometimes has a very soft difference between it. Right. Because you're feeling, <laughs> you it, know. Exactly. And I think as a young person, I was moving through the world so self-actualized, so successful. I had never been knocked down. And my having my husband leave me and I had a baby, um, I was so knocked down. Mm. And it was something I couldn't do anything about. I had always been, because I was so scrappy, you know, growing up. The way you did. Before, and I was very, very scrappy. And I had come to believe that I was the you know, change agent in my life. Yeah. And here was something that happened, and I couldn't do a damn thing about it. Except move on. Except move through and and eventually move on. Mm. Yeah. Well, Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Just the Right Book. Uh, I wish you just enormous success with Strangers Tend to Tell Me Things. I think it's the kind of book that is so nourishing in a time when things don't feel nourishing. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. And, I well, I do think it. it's really true. And so I know you're you're embarking on your tour. We'll see you at RJ Julia's in June. And I look forward to seeing your book on all the bestseller lists. Oh, I'm so excited. Thank you so, so much. Go pick up a copy of Amy Dickinson's Strangers Tend to Tell Me Things, a memoir of love, loss, and coming home that's now out in paperback. Because of you, we've had a great first season, and we'd love your help in making season two an even bigger success. Just go to bookpodcast.com and click on the survey on the main page. It will only take a minute, and it'll help us learn what you like. Just the Right Book podcast returns with a new and exciting season later this month. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. And our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all for listening.